Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Joseph. Good to see you on the show. Hey, Jeremy. Nice to see you over this video call. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm excited to share your story because you're a second-time founder, building out of Indonesia, and you're tackling, obviously, the SaaS space. So lots of interesting learnings, and you've always been in technology, so I'm excited to share your story. Uh, for those who don't know you yet, could you share with them who you are professionally? Yeah, sure. My name is Joseph. I'm the CEO and founder of SalesOne. We are a CRM company. I guess the easiest way, at least for Indonesians, for my clients to compare myself to Salesforce. But yeah, that's basically what I do. I've been doing SalesOne for the past three, almost four years now already, tackling the, the, the CRM market basically in Indo. Amazing. And how did you first get started in technology? I graduated from San Francisco, South State. And then, you know, I'm sure you're well aware, over there, it's like the Silicon Valley. So whenever we're in college, I think we were always surrounded just by a lot of tech companies. So like, since the get-go, I knew I wanted to build a tech company in Indonesia, not, not in the States, but in Indonesia. But actually, back then, my, my major was in finance. So I was trying to find a job in, in finance and banking after college. But then that was like during the the Great Recession, around, around the Great Recession time. And then basically I end up getting a job in a ERP company, a US ERP company, but in Singapore. So I guess that's my first job in the technology space. And over there, you learn a lot about systems, about sales, marketing, primarily a lot of enterprise-related software. What was it like your first day in a technology company? Do you remember what you were like? <laughs> It was really scary because I'm not actually doing something that's related to my major. It was in finance, but then I was actually uh, taking a job in, in sales marketing. So it was scary, challenging, didn't know what I was getting myself into, but definitely exciting. Yeah. And why did you choose technology? I mean, out of all the things you've chosen, like you said, you had a finance degree. I'm sure all your peers were all going to finance. And just because of San Francisco at that time didn't mean that everybody wasn't going to finance, right? Yeah, actually, so I graduated a year early than my classmates. I didn't have a chance to discuss with, hey, you know, with my friends, you know, where are you going? What are you thinking of doing? Things like that. I applied to a bunch in Singapore. So primarily I knew I wanted to go back to Singapore. To be honest with you, I guess it was kind of chance. It was just out of just like chance, pure luck. I ended in that company. Yeah, it's funny because at that same time, we both graduated actually the same year, right? Yeah. From the Bay Area. And we both traveled back to Southeast Asia. So for me, I think it was like, I always knew I'll be back in Southeast Asia. Mm. My family, my roots. How about you? You made a decision not to stay in the SFB area. At the time, Google was getting started <laughs> yeah. and hiring a lot of business folks yeah. in the Bay Area. So why did you also decide to come back to Southeast Asia? Same reason. Primarily was because of family. You know, my, my, my family has a family business here. And then my dad was like, you have to go back. I think that's the story of every Asian son or like most Asian son. But what's funny was after I 
I think just two weeks after I uh, came back to Singapore, I actually got a job offer from WhatsApp. And at that time, WhatsApp was like this really, really small company. But then I guess th- that was uh, my first regret, like professionally, uh, not, not trying to pursue that because at that time I accepted the job already. And at the same time, I knew I want to be in Southeast Asia. So I didn't pursue that. What do you think your life would have been if you had taken that offer? Because it would require you to stay in SF. Obviously, you have been a relatively early employee, I think in the first hundred, maybe. So what was that like? Yeah. I think I'm a firm believer in everything that happens to you happens for a reason. So I, I don't put much thought into it. I guess you're right. Uh, at that time, I would have been like an early employee of uh, WhatsApp, would probably have learned a lot. But then that's, that's, I guess, the same thing, because when I finished from Singapore and then I came back to Indo, a lot of my friends actually went into uh, management training in banks. And I actually, when I came back, I, I dived right into the world of startups, managing everything by yourself. I asked that question years after, after I started my first startup. And then I basically made a conclusion that everything happens for a reason. And because I did that, I think I was able to learn much more than my friends who who, who started out of uh, management training. <laughs> I can imagine your friends who did management training are like listening to this podcast and like, oh yeah, I should have uh, done technology so hot these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because at that time they were like talking about, oh yeah, it's so difficult, you know, you, you, you do like this, this, this and rotation. And I was like, dude, I have to take care of sales, marketing, legal, accounting, Everything, right? Tech development, at least in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, very true. At that time, I think rotational programs were very, very hot uh, for everybody, especially at the multinational corporations. And they were like, oh, come back to Southeast Asia. And so there you are, and you cut your teeth for a couple of years, just kind of like working in tech. And what's interesting is that after that, you pretty much at the same point of time, are doing this not just as in technology, but also as a founder, right? Out pretty much of college, right? From 2012. So what was that like? If I had to do it again, I think I wouldn't have done it immediately, to be honest with you. If I can do it again, I would have probably taken on maybe one or two more years of working for someone else as an experience. Because when, when I came back, still very young, still fresh out of college uh, with a lot of uh, ideals of, of how a business is supposed to run, things like that. But obviously in the workspace, it's, it's, you do have to make adjustments, things like that. So it was a, lot, a huge culture shock, especially coming back to Indo, where my Indo friends, my Indonesian friends back in college, they haven't came back yet. I actually came back to Indo with no contacts, no, no contacts, no friends. Because from high school, I actually moved to Singapore already. So I, I kind of lost, lost touch with my middle school friends. And then in Singapore, it was international school. So none of them were in Indo. And then my college buddies still in the States. So it was a huge uh, culture shock to come back to Indo. Yeah, It's an interesting thing because we see so many founders fresh out of college and I literally just interviewed one yesterday. He was building it during university and then he's going to go full-time into it upon graduation. It reminded me of you know, myself, right? Because I too also built something right out of college as well. So that makes, I guess, the trio of us who did that. What advice would you give to people who are thinking about setting something up while they're at university? So actually, I 
was setting something up back in university. It didn't work out, right? The idea didn't work out, but I started to do something back in, 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 in college. What advice would I give? Don't be stubborn, I guess. Because I think when you're young, you have this certain, again, ideals, right? That can be good, but also to a certain extent might prevent you from learning things faster. I, I definitely felt that in my own experience. And I think that's the one advice I would give. Don't be stubborn, be open-minded, listen to people. What made you think about that and piece of advice? My family has a family business in tech. So they're in the tech industry as well. Obviously, when I came back, my dad has a lot of these contacts. And back then, I thought, I think I was just too proud. I had too much pride in, in asking for help. When in reality, in business, you need to have as much unfair advantages as you can, as you possibly can. The way I think now is, is different than the way I think, what, 10, 12 years ago, where, oh, you know, I, I'm just too prideful. I, I, can't, I can do it without you, dad, you know, those types of things. But now if I think about it, if I can get a connection, if someone can introduce me, if someone can help me, why not? Yeah, totally true. And I remember having those feelings as well, right? Because it's just like, oh, you know, I got to figure this out myself. I'm going to talk to strangers. I'm not going to ask friends because I also don't want to talk to my friends because if I mess it up, then at least they don't know I messed it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so yeah, it's a tough one. And what's interesting is that there you are and you know, you're building out for those two years and then you decide to kind of you know, move on to the next and simplify. So what was that transition like? I did my first startup for around two and a half years. I did it the normal startup route. So I raised funding and then raised, I think, several more rounds of funding. And then I sold that company two and a half years later. The primary reason was I finally realized something. Back then, when I first started uh, Live Epically, it was my first startup. I thought that you can just simply copy and paste ideas from the U.S. To, and then, then you know, implement it in, in Southeast Asia uh, or Indonesia specifically. It took me, I guess, two and a half years to realize that, oh, no, you can't really do that. You can't really just copy and paste it because there's so many factors. For example, the biggest factor before I remember, it was a cultural thing. So it typically was like this Yelp and open table combined. I realized after having done that startup, I realized that the Indonesian culture is just different. I think in America, people are used to writing reviews, lengthy reviews, helpful reviews, but that's just not the culture in Indonesia. Until today, if you go into any marketplace, Tokopedia, Shopee, whatever, and you go to the review section, usually the ones in Indonesia, most of the reviews are like fast shipping. Great response. That's it. That's the primary reason why I Back then, you know, when, when I had the opportunity to be able to exit the company, to, to sell the company, I realized, okay, it was a good run, basically. How did you process that, the fact that it was a good run and that you're going to start a new chapter? Well, okay, so one, I realized that, okay, so I can at least, you know, return the, 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 the investor's money. At least it's not, uh, I, it's not a total failure where, where I had to, like, stop the, the, the company and things like that. But to be honest with you, after I sold that company, I, I think it took me several months to figure out what I wanted to do next. I kind of did things here and there. I expanded my knowledge in 
the tech world took more coding classes just so that I can understand it better as well before, you know, finally figuring out, okay, I wanted to do sales one. And talk more about that transition. I remember my, 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 my dad asked me to join the family business. I said, okay, I'll help out. I'll help out and I'll see, you know, what's, what's going on with the family businesses tech divisions. Because the family business traditionally, it's been always mainly network and infrastructure. So a lot of hardware related things. And then the software side, the software division is, is very small at the time. So then I went in and then basically I identified a few products back then. I think we had local principles and we were just a distributor. Yeah, I remember that we had this one product. It was not a CRM. It was more like a Salesforce automation software. But then I had a principal or we had a principal who was very uncooperative. But at the same time, his software was not anything special in, in my opinion. I figured, okay, I could do things better. I can build a better system. I can build a better CRM, Salesforce automation software. And that's, I guess, how I kind of started with Sales One. Amazing. So what was it like building it? So the second time around is much easier. The first time around was my first time managing programmers. I didn't know what the programming languages options were. But then the second time around, you know, I kind of knew what I wanted. I knew the functions, the features. I think it took us maybe six months to reach our first MVP. And then we tested it into our existing clients. They loved it. So they start migrating into our new system. So you found it was easier right now. You know what's going on. What else did you know better this time around on the second time? Hmm. I figured out that shit's going to happen in business. So I learned to plan for as much shit to happen as much as possible and then, and then have a solution for that. For example, my, my first client, I remember we had to integrate our software with their ERP system. And then this is, this is a, a large company, you know, they had like, I think around a thousand salespeople in that company alone. So the system was complex. The integration was complex. But then, you know, being a salesperson, you would just say, oh yeah, yeah, we, we can do it, you know, <laughs> we can do it. And then when we went into it, when my programmers told me, okay, yeah, but it's going to take, let's say, you know, three months. I knew that three months is not going to be three months. I knew three months is going to be five months <laughs> at least. So I, I think that's, that's one of the more valuable things that I learned. Yeah, just be more realistic with, with reality, I suppose, that you know, shit's going to happen. People are going to get sick. Uh, client is not going to respond as fast as you'd like, for example. What's interesting also, it sounds like, is that you also were much more calmer or, I don't know if that's the right phrase, or more accepting or more like psychologically, I don't know, was it stronger or, I don't know, experienced compared to the first time, right? Because, <laughs> you know, all the stuff you're describing is the knowledge and the stuff. And even when you describe it, you know, you can talk about how more confident you were as well. So could you share with us, like, some of the differences here? I'm a guy who's always done sales, selling things ever since high school. So I'm, I'm actually very used to selling things. But then, you know, in my first startup, when I started to sell things, for real, for a product that I actually built, there's a different feeling. Maybe your reputation is at stake, your image is at stake, things like that, right? Uh, your ego is also at, is at stake. 
And I remember I did a cold calling to a restaurant. And it was just a regular cold calling. And the manager picked up the phone and then he basically started cursing at me right, for, for cold calling him. And that really shook me. That really shook me during when I was building my first startup. But then after a while, you kind of get used to all of the different rejections to all of the different no's from your prospects. So the second time around, as you said, psychologically, I think it's, I've been more resilient. I've, I've developed a thicker skin. I really understood that doesn't always mean no. If someone says no to you now, doesn't mean they'll say no to you in six months. I've learned that a no doesn't mean that you failed. It's not the end of all. I think that's, that's the biggest difference in, in terms of mindset that I've learned. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, there you are thinking about being thoughtful and being much more experienced compared to last time around. So looking ahead, you know, what are you most excited about for the next one year in 2022? Hmm. We are actually back when COVID first happened. I think a huge shock to all of us, I'm sure. And it was a huge shock to my clients as well. When people ask me, hey, is your business, was your business affected? And I said, of course it was affected because my clients' businesses are definitely affected. But then in 2021, what I noticed is, especially the past few months, uh, people are starting to be more accepting of the realities of COVID and that probably it's, it's not going to disappear completely. So what I've been very excited about, at least for the next year, is that we've seen quite an acceleration in terms of the companies or like enterprises' willingness to invest in remote working technologies. Because before it was very much a, oh, you know, we can still do it this way, that way, that, that type of thing. But then because of COVID, you know, we've seen like they being more open-minded. It's actually gone up in terms of their priorities project list. So I'm very excited about that. So for example, one of our projects I'm, I'm working on right now is with a bank. They had trouble in the beginning of COVID arranging the customer service team. Because obviously, as you know, customer service teams, they're all in the same place, right? Very near to each other. It's very difficult to social distance. And also at the same time, it's high cost. It's a high cost center. What we proposed to them is we did uh, some sort of a robocall solution, which is it's, it's a common solution in U.S. It's not so common in Indonesia. So basically, we try to automate the call so that you know, they can reduce the number of service representatives uh, working in the office at one time, saving them costs, things like that. If COVID didn't happen, there's no way they would have even considered that. Let's talk about COVID because it sounds like there's a big shift there for you. How else has COVID impacted the way you know you think about business and how it's impacted your business? For me personally, our, for our business, it's, it didn't really change much because we're a tech company. We're very used to you know using different software Slack, for example, or like Zoom as well. But the biggest change is in the sales department. Selling through Zoom is very different to selling in person. Convincing someone to purchase your product or your services is very different in person versus over in Zoom. So that's the one thing that we've had to really adjust and, and, and just to really figure out what's, what's the right way to to hit that sweet spot, have a serious conversation, 
But then at the same time, you're building this connection, you're building this rapport with your customers. And, and that's been the biggest change that at least our company has experienced. That's an interesting piece, right? Because I think everybody's selling via Zoom. So that means founders are selling to VCs over Zoom, VCs are selling to founders over Zoom, sales folks are selling over Zoom. Do you have any tips on how to be better at selling over Zoom and the remote world? Yes. I've actually put a lot of thought on this because we just did this workshop internally. One, your camera has to be always on, even if your customer's camera is not on. Especially in Asian culture where trust means a lot, you can't trust someone if you haven't met them, if you haven't seen their face. So one, I always tell my, my team, turn your camera on regardless of whether or not your customer is turning theirs on or not. That's the first one. Secondly, you actually have to do more preparation to sell over Zoom than if, than if you're, you're meeting in person. Right, because meeting in person, you just need to bring your laptop, maybe an HDMI connector to connect to the projector, and that's, that's it. But with Zoom, there's a lot of things that you have to prepare. You have to prepare your mic, your camera, your internet, your presentation, making sure that your demo is working, that you can open it properly, things like that. And I feel like in the beginning, a lot of salespeople took it easy. They, they thought, oh, it's the same. So they didn't put more effort in preparation. So First, turn on your camera. Secondly, you know you do have to make more preparations. Thirdly, you do have to connect outside of Zoom, whether it be a one-on-one -on -one video call through WhatsApp or just a voice call through WhatsApp or sending your customers coffee. Hey, thank you for, for meeting with us the other day. Here's a coffee. Have fun working. Things like that. You, you, you kind of have to replace that personal touch that you would get from asking someone to meet you over coffee. So, so that's the way, at least we do it in our, in our company. So we try just to like send little things just to show that we care and that we, we want to build a, a good relationship with you. One interesting thing is you mentioned is obviously like the Asian culture of FaceTime. And now there's this whole Zoom culture because of the pandemic. So if you're going to make a bet in uh, 10 years uh, where there's no more pandemic, fingers crossed, what would you think is the mix of remote versus in-person sales versus hybrid? How do you think that will shake out? So obviously Singapore is very different. But in my personal opinion, in 10 years, if COVID is truly gone, to be honest with you, the whole meeting in person thing would actually still be dominant, like be still the, the main way of doing things, doing business, at least in Indonesia, maybe in Thailand, Philippines, those countries similar to Indonesia. Singapore would be different, but in Indonesia, I do think that people would still go back to meeting in person. For example, I not only sell to enterprise, I also sell to universities. In meeting with the universities, they are very, very reluctant in meeting over Zoom. Government officials, very reluctant to meet over Zoom. So if we're talking just 10 years, I don't think that there's going to be much change. In terms of maybe managing things, yeah, maybe people can still do it remotely, but I think the majority, honestly, I don't think it'll change. I think, I think we'll go back to still being in office, still meeting in meeting rooms, things like that. 
that's an interesting contrarian discussion <laughs> because it feels like everyone else is betting that it's going to go fully remote or that it's going to take up a big chunk of it. It's hard to tell. I mean, I would probably take a little bit more contrarian view. I feel like there's going to be a group of salespeople who are really good and optimized for selling remotely. And maybe they're able to keep carving out that niche, but it's hard to tell. Yeah, I think it really depends on who you're selling to. For example, our company, we are mainly selling to enterprises, local companies, so we're not selling to tech startups, for example. So it's, it's very different. So I guess that's why I've, I've developed that contrarian view, because these types of companies, they really like meeting in person. Did you know, Jeremy, I, you know, I, I have this client, a big Japanese conglomerate. Whenever I meet them, it would always be a minimum of a three-hour meeting. Minimum three hours. Several times it was like the whole day I'm, I'm in their office. Is it always meeting or like discussing serious stuff? No. But... They just like the company. <laughs> I don't know. They just like the company. I don't know what else to say. So I, I don't. I, I think that's that's why I developed that contrarian view. It's interesting because you don't only, of course, sell CRMs to folks, but you're also helping other people sell to other people. I think you have a good sense of the sales culture. How else do you think the sales culture? for Indonesia, you think is different from other Southeast Asian countries like Singapore, Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand. Any thoughts on that? So Indonesia, as we're all aware, is a very large country. Jakarta is different than the rest of Java. And Java is different than the rest of Indonesia. The way people sell is very different depending on where you sell as well. I know a lot of salespeople are still going door to door manually, things like that. And also I think it's because Indo's, Indonesia's infrastructure is still lacking. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, around four weeks ago, the government kind of asked us to go back into lockdown uh, in the whole Indonesia, speci- specifically Java. Once that happened, you can notice a significant decrease in the internet quality at home because suddenly everyone's at home Everyone's using the internet, but then the quality, you know, the ISPs don't increase the quality. So then the quality decreases. Those things like that are are the things that is going to make it very difficult for people to be able to sell online. In terms of differences between Indonesia and the rest of Southeast Asia, I actually am a firm believer because I do have clients in Malaysia and the Philippines as well. Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, maybe Vietnam. I do think it's kind of similar cultural-wise. It's just Singapore that's maybe very different because I think Singapore is a, is a global hub city. So it's, it's very international. It's, it's uh, quite westernized as well. So, so it's got different cultures. But I think for the rest of Southeast Asia, it is somewhat similar. But specifically Indonesia, yeah, I think the selling mindset is still very approaching it face-to-face. Now, if you're asking me in 20 years, going to be different. Why? Because usually in 20 years, the second generation would already probably take a more significant role within the company. Maybe the first generation, because Indonesia, you know, a lot of large businesses are actually family businesses. So in 20 years, the second generations who maybe went to college in the US, who is more technologically savvy, 
they can implement these remote working situations. And, and probably their, their patriarch, they would already retire. So that's what I think. So wrapping up here, could you tell us a time where you had a tough time and had to be brave? I feel like I do. I have to do it so many times. <laughs> Just because like building a company, you do have to be brave specifically. So we had a government project, I think around two years ago, that we were bidding for. Obviously, you know, it was an open bid. There's a few different competitors. And if you know the culture, there's things that people do to ensure that, you know, they can close the deal, close a large size project. But I've always made it a point not to engage in those business activities, those types of business activities, just because it goes against primarily my faith. And that was really difficult knowing that your competitors are doing things like that. Like I, I told my team, we can't, like, I don't want to do those types of things. When we submitted the proposal, it was very nervous. We had to wait. Thank God we did win the, the, the project. Looking back, it's, it's easy for me to, to tell you this story. But when I was going through it, it was, there was a, this huge doubt because there was a huge, huge, huge project that we were trying to win. So I think, I think that's, that's the time, Jeremy. It's doing things that you know other people are doing, but you don't want to do because it kind of goes against with your integrity. I think that's, that's being brave. Wow. That is a tough decision and I can't imagine what it was like because I think so many people in the technology world in Southeast Asia deal with that decision, honestly, every month, right? You know, I would say. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I think one thing I remember is just like, you know, some people tell me they go one way and other times people tell me they went the other way. Frankly, I don't judge. <laughs> it is what it is and I think it's a tough reality of the region, I think. No, it is. It is, right? And you're right. You know, I'm, I'm in no place to judge. I just judge myself. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's all I can do. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that's the part I think I... Sometimes people ask me about it. I'm just like, you got to act the way you're comfortable, right? At the end of the day, because what are you comfortable with? Which is not... I think it's not the US textbook answer. All square and good. But I'm just like, yeah, you know, if you're approaching this way and you have targeted this sector and so on and so forth, this is the current reality of the field. So if you go in this way, they're going to ask. Whereas if you, is there a way we can think of another way where you can sell differently or target different people, et cetera, where you don't feel like you have to compromise? And I think that's a tough moment for a lot of people in the region. I wanted to paraphrase the three big themes I learned from you. That was really helpful. I think the first thing that I really appreciated was, of course, you just sharing about your personal and professional journey from studying in you know Indonesia to Singapore to SF and back to Indonesia and Southeast Asia. And it was just interesting to see your choices along those routes, as well as the fact that you turned down WhatsApp. <laughs> so let's, I guess you can write it down somewhere. <laughs> and then I think the second thing I really appreciated was you talking about, I think, some of the dynamics of how the sales culture is like in Indonesia versus other Southeast Asia countries, but also how you think that will change over the next 10 to 20 years. And I think that's really interesting, especially in light of the pandemic, you know, causing a lot of people to wonder about it. And lastly, I think thank you for sharing, you know, all the different episodes of bravery. I think obviously with the last one, thinking about how you intend to go in and pitch, but also how you, you know, went off and explored different geographies and verticals and learned a lot between your first startup and where you are today as a second-time serial founder. And thank you so much for sharing some of that journey with us. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 
for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.